This episode is brought to you by Visit Williamsburg. In Williamsburg, Virginia, there's never too much of a good thing. Whether you're a foodie, a golfer, a history buff, a shopaholic, an outdoor enthusiast, or a thrill seeker, you'll find what you came for here and more. So ask yourself, what is it you want? Discover Williamsburg and plan your trip at visitwilliamsburg.com. Another day is here and you're ready for it. What to wear? Check. Breakfast, lunch, and dinner? Check. Planning for what's next and how to save for it? That's where Bank of America can help. For your financial to-dos, Bank of America has experts ready to help get you closer to your goals. Get started at one of our local financial centers or 24-7 in our mobile banking app. Find a location near you at bankofamerica.com slash talk to us. What would you like the power to do? Mobile banking requires downloading the app and is only available for select devices. Message and data rates may apply. Bank of America and a member FDIC. When you need mealtime inspiration, it's worth shopping Kroger, where you'll find over 30,000 mouth-watering choices that excite your inner foodie. And no matter what tasty choice you make, you'll enjoy our everyday low prices, plus extra ways to save, like digital coupons worth over $600 each week. You can also save up to $1 off per gallon at the pump with fuel points. More savings and more inspiring flavors make shopping Kroger worth it every time. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Fuel restrictions apply. Welcome to the New Books Network. Hello, everyone. Welcome back to the Disability Study Channel at New Books Network. This is your host, Shu Wan. Today, I feel very happy to invite Dr. Molly Lady Taylor to join us to introduce her book, Fixing the Pool. So, the first question I want to raise, ask Dr. Lady Taylor today, is that. Um, is just want to I'm sorry. Is introduce you to introduce yourself to to our audience. Well, first, let me say thank you so much for hosting this excellent podcast and for inviting me to talk about fixing the poor. It's not a new book, but I've really appreciated the opportunity to revisit it and introduce it to new readers. I'm a professor of history at York University in Toronto, Canada, and my research has generally focused on gender, welfare, and social policy particularly motherhood and child welfare. Thank you so much for your answer. So after that question, I want to invite you to tell us what's the reason you take interest in the promising field of disability studies? I came to disability studies through my research on eugenics. When I started my project, I thought I was writing about race, class, and reproductive politics. But as I got into the archive and met some sterilization survivors, I realized I was really writing about intellectual disability, and I came to see my book as a social history of people with disabilities who'd been sterilized, and also, even more, a case study of how the attribution of disability, in this case, feeble-mindedness or mental deficiency, were used to justify discrimination and the denial of reproductive rights. And of course, as many others have said, disability is everywhere once you begin looking for it, and I've really, uh, disability studies has given me professionally and personally, uh, has enriched my life. Okay, thank you so much for your answer. So now let's go to your book. So for your book, my first question is that I want to invite you to talk about the twin foundation of Minnesota's sterilization law in the eugenics and the child welfare movement before 1917. So thank you so much for that question. Today, despite there has been decades of really great scholarship on eugenics, but most people still think of eugenic sterilization as about elite arrogance and bad ideas. 
sterilization as the horrific result of scientific racism and the idea that you could breed a better race, like the Nazis. My interest in the implementation of sterilization policy and how it worked in practice led me to a different origin story. I see sterilization as, in many ways, a welfare policy rooted in ideas about the deserving and undeserving poor, in the tradition of local local responsibility for poor relief, and in efforts to limit the public's economic responsibility for the poor that long predated eugenics. Minnesota's sterilization law was passed in 1925, but the institutional basis of the program was the State Institution for the Feeble-Minded in Faribault, Minnesota. Almost all of the sterilizations were performed there. Before 1917, the Faribault Institution, I think, was more like a whorehouse than a Goffman-like total institution. It was a hateful place that poor families tried to avoid, but also turned to when they needed economic relief or respite care. Some people were institutionalized by a court order, but there were also voluntary admissions and families put their loved ones there and also took them out. In the 1910s, the institution became more deeply involved in eugenics and the superintendent aligned himself with the eugenic record office in Cold Spring Harbor. The superintendent, A.C. Rogers, advanced the idea that fertile, feeble-minded women were a menace to society and pushed for a compulsory commitment law that would institutionalize them for life. So that's the eugenics side. The other foundation of the sterilization law was the child welfare movement. In the 19th century, poor children were treated pretty much the same as adults, sent to poor houses and put in jail alongside adult criminals. But progressive reformers in the 1910s, tried to extend notions of innocent childhood to children who were poor and defined as delinquent and dependent on welfare. We see the juvenile court designed to keep children out of jail, mothers' pensions, which allowed poor children to stay at home instead of an orphanage. But the innocent child concept didn't include kids or adults considered defective or disabled or feeble-minded who were still considered a menace to society. And in 1917, Minnesota passed a children's code that really wrote that differential treatment of the innocent child on the one hand and the feeble-minded menace on the other into the law. So the Child Welfare Code was a package of laws that modernized the child welfare system It included the first modern adoption law providing for home studies, improvements in the treatment of illegitimate children, but it also included the eugenic commitment law that Rogers had long advocated. It empowered judges to commit dependent and neglected children, and any person alleged to be feeble-minded, inebriate, or insane to state guardianship without the approval of parent or kin. The Children's Code also established the administrative apparatus, a state children's bureau and county child welfare boards that would be central to the administration of the sterilization law. Thank you so much for your answer. For the next question, I'm wondering what you talk about state welfare 
officials growing support for sterilization law following the enactment of a children's code, as well as a bitter conflict between the hardline MBS and the welfare-oriented state board of control. Yeah, thank you. We know a lot about eugenics in the years after World War One. The story has often been told about the anxieties sparked by the IQ testing of army recruits during the war, the violence of anti-Black racism and hostility to immigrants, and policy successes like the Immigration Restriction Act, Virginia's anti-miscegenation law, and of course, Buck versus Bell, the Supreme Court decision that upheld Virginia's eugenic sterilization law. But we talk less, or historians of eugenics talk less, about how those same years, the aftermath of World War I, also saw a change in the nature of the state. The wartime growth in the state's administrative capacity and an increased intervention into ordinary people's lives. We see this with the Prohibition Amendment, with anti-venereal disease activities, and with infant health. So in Minnesota, the combined impact of the war and the Children's Code expanded the network of professional and volunteer child welfare workers and took the social welfare infrastructure into every corner of the state, just as there was a farm depression. So these new pressures on the welfare system, the depression, these new responsibilities took place alongside the compulsory commitment law, which led to a major change in the Faribault school population, which heightened the pressures facing state welfare officials. The state now had less control over commitments because it was probate judges, not the institution superintendent, who had the power to make commitments and hopefully to institutionalize people. And local judges, this is so horrible, the local judges used the commitment law to rid their communities of who they considered troublesome individuals, especially, but not only girls who might get pregnant outside of marriage and become a welfare burden. So this exacerbated the problem of overcrowding in the institution, and it made many of the population who was institutionalized resentful and harder to imagine. Uh, to manage. So in that mix stepped the Minnesota Eugenics Society and its leader, a physician named Charles Dite. Charles Dite gave hundreds of speeches and published hundreds of pamphlets and letters to the editor, and his papers are in the Minnesota Historical Society. He called himself responsible for the sterilization law in Minnesota. But the fact is, the state welfare officials who wrote the law and administered it did not agree with Dite's idea of sterilizing all the unfit and found him so annoying that they kept trying to avoid him. They'd duck out the back door when he would walk by. And I think this reminds us of the gap between the public of eugenics rhetoric that can be so offensive and what happened on the ground which is also problematic, but we sometimes miss it because we get tricked up uh, by the, the rhetoric. So Dyke wanted a sweeping sterilization law, but the law that passed in Minnesota was relatively restrained, and it was based more on a social work model than eugenics idea of sterilizing the unfit. So the law passed in 1925 
applied only to people already under court-ordered guardianship as feeble-minded or insane, using these words. Uh, and I've talked about the judges um, committing people. Uh, so the persons labeled insane had to be hospitalized for six months and give their personal consent to the surgery. For people designated feeble-minded, consent had to come from kin or a family member because under the law, the feeble-minded person was legally incompetent and couldn't consent for themselves. So the personal consent provision is one reason that the overwhelming number of sterilizations were performed on people who were considered feeble-minded rather than people designated insane who had to consult to consent to the surgery of their own. In practice, the State Board of Control prioritized the sterilization of sexually active women who might have babies and uh, become that would go on welfare, and they used the law to make room in the institute to move these people out of the institution and make room for the new patients uh, who were being committed. In other words, I would argue they used the law more for institution management and economic welfare reasons rather than for the elimination of hereditary deficiencies. Thank you so much for your answer. So for the next question, I'm wondering about who was designated um, people mandated and who go to decide it. Well, thank you for that. I think this uh, discussion of who was feeble-minded is really the heart of my book. It's very disturbing and heartbreaking. Feeble-mindedness is often described by historians, rightly so, as a catch-all term that encompassed all sorts of people, immigrants, blacks, poor whites, prostitutes, unwed mothers, sexual minorities, criminals, and of course, people with disabilities. But the point I want to make is that it was also a legal classification. People designated feeble-minded in court could not vote, own property. They could not marry. They could not make their own medical decisions, including about sterilization. And they couldn't decide where they live, if they would be institutionalized or not. In the eyes of the law, they were like children protected by the state. So under the law, equally awful, any, quote, reputable citizen, reputable citizen could initiate commitment proceedings and a local judge, a local probate judge, who is an elected official not required to have any legal or medical training, made the fit, uh, feeble-minded designation and committed a person to guardianship for life, possibly institutionalization and of course, sterilization. The judge was legally uh, empowered to consult with an examining board if he wanted to, but he didn't have to. And the vagueness of the statutory definition of feeble-mindedness meant that the reasons for feeble-minded commitments were extremely varied, arbitrary, and unpredictable. In general, however, it's safe to say that judges mainly committed people who were already came to their attention because they were in trouble with welfare agencies or the law, especially the uh, juvenile court, often juveniles. So one thing that's important here is that if a person was committed to guardianship, state guardianship, and institutionalized, the state would pick up part of the tab for supporting them. So judges saw the economic advantage of this and often used the law to rid 
their communities of people uh, they thought might uh, become a welfare burden and be expensive. So in terms of who was, so we don't see a lot of expertise in, despite our, the way we think of eugenics, we don't see a lot of expertise in how feeble-minded designations were made. It was random and it was partisan. In terms of who was designated feeble-minded, I didn't find anyone sterilized under and committed as feeble-minded and sterilized under the law who was not poor. Everybody was poor. And many of them came from very troubled families. They were victims of trauma or abuse. They had physical or mental disabilities that left them vulnerable to exploitation. And that is how they came to the state's attention. So I was able to uh, trace some of these folks' stories uh, by looking at the correspondence of the State Board of Control, the case files of the State Reform School, uh, and court records. Uh, and they reveal a, a litany of hardship and abuse. For example, 18-year-old Edna Collins began acting out, which was the main symptom of her feeble-mindedness, after a 50-year-old man molested her when she was 9 or 10 years old. 19-year-old Lucille Johnson had two illegitimate children by her father and brother. Herman Fechner was a 45-year-old World War I veteran who lived with his parents and worked as a janitor when he was arrested for attempting a so-called crime against nature. That is gay sex. <clears throat> but he also exhibited problematic behaviors that his neighbors didn't like. He talked to himself, well, really yelled to himself. He urinated in public, uh, and he made his neighbors, including one who was the mother of a young girl, very nervous. So instead of being sent to jail for sodomy, Herman Fechner was brought before a probate judge, subject to a set of humiliating questions. He was asked to count backwards from 20, name the word opposite of war, and so on, and he was unable to do these things. So it was very humiliating. He was committed as feeble-minded uh, and sent to the state institution. He actually challenged his commitment all the way to the Supreme Court, uh, but he failed and he died in the institution. One more story of really one of the cases that we know the most about was a woman named Rose Masters, who was the wife of a poor tenant farmer and a mother of 10. Her family had a really good reputation in the community, but like many others, they fell on hard times in the Depression and went on county relief. They had four children. So they only had six children before they went on county relief. They had four more children uh, who were born during the period that they received public assistance, which not surprisingly frustrated the welfare workers who were trying to uh, local uh, responsibility for relief that had to pay for the, uh, the families. Uh, support. A psychologist, when they went to court, a psychologist said Mrs. Masters was feeble-minded because she had a low IQ. The welfare workers talked about the evidence of her feeble-mindedness in her poor housekeeping and child neglect. Her home wasn't clean. The children's clothes were tattered. Chickens roamed through the house. And my personal favorite, the only food uh, on the table was bread and syrup, and the bread wasn't sliced properly. It was torn in the middle. So Mrs. Master's friends and neighbors and family, they pushed back against the state's commitment. Uh, they said 
this woman was institutionalized as punishment for having 10 children. I said, okay, she's not a very good housekeeper, but she was a good mother and her children were normal. Mrs. Masters was articulate and calm in court. She was able to answer all the court's questions. And ultimately, the state Supreme Court struck down her commitment. Now, this happened in 1944 as the commitment of the eugenics program is always winding down. But the point here is that people were committed to state guardianship as feeble-minded for a variety of reasons uh, that had more to do with being poor and experiencing trauma, often disability, than anything else. Thanks so much for your answer. So for the next question, I'm wondering about how surgical sterilization functions as a prize of freedom from state institution and the development in a social casework which accompanied the policy shift away from eugenic segregation and toward community living after sterilization. Yeah, so sterilization was the price of freedom in that it was a step toward release from the state institution. Many states, not just Minnesota, had an unwritten rule that they wouldn't release people from a state institution for the so-called feeble-minded until they had been sterilized. Now, in Minnesota and most elsewhere, people sterilized and released from the institution were still wards of the state and they were still, quote, on parole. So decisions about sterilization were actually bound up with determinations of which feeble-minded people could live in the community and support themselves without getting into trouble, and also uh, who had family members or kin who would be willing to consent to sterilization. In that sense, I see sterilization and parole as a step and a step toward what we now call community living, because that's how they saw it at the time, as community living, this is part of a larger welfare policy shift away from poor houses and orphanages, big welfare institutions, to community services and surveillance. So one of the preconditions for sterilization as this price of freedom was the community services that were able to monitor and regulate these women's and men's, but mostly women's uh, behavior. So the child welfare system that we talked about earlier established a network of social service agencies and volunteers that monitored and even housed the women who were sterilized and released. Another reason in Minnesota women were more likely to be sterilized than men is that women's jobs were low-wage jobs were more plentiful and easier to monitor than jobs for men. There was a lot of interest in uh, domestic servants, for example. And also, it's highly gendered. Families were more willing to consent to the sterilization of women, and communities were much uh, more opposed to the release of so-called feeble-minded men. So one thing that happened was women uh, who were often sterilized and released but men, their male counterparts, were often locked up tightly and kept in the institution. Now, having said all that, I'm arguing sterilization was a welfare measure, a eugenics policy, but it's really important to not to remember that it was also a medical practice. For women, 
It was major abdominal surgery, abdominal surgery that was performed on people legally unable to consent, people who were institutionalized. So these policies were written on people's bodies. And that's a you know, really important part of the story. Thank you so much for your answer. So for the next question, I'm I'm wondering. Uh, I'm I want to invite you to talk about routine, routinization of eugenic institutionalization and sterilization as the state bureaucracy extended during a new deal and the repudiation of those practices around the time of World War II. Yeah, so sterilizations increased during the Depression and New Deal in Minnesota and across the country. But those same years also planted the seeds of resistance and the undoing of eugenic sterilization, eugenic sterilization policies, as opposed to other forms of abuse in other legal contexts. And this is both because the state overreached uh, with the sterilization program in Minnesota, and also because New Deal rhetoric about the common man protecting, you know, the common man, uh, and social programs, New Deal social programs, legitimized dependence on public assistance. One of the most interesting things about the Depression and New Deal in Minnesota is the gap between the public discourse of eugenics, which was receding in Minnesota. Nobody talked about the menace of the feeble-minded in Minnesota, or hardly anybody talked about it uh, in the 1930s, which is when the sterilizations actually increased. And sterilizations reached their peak in the state when it had a left-wing governor who was a strong supporter of social welfare entitlements and an early critic of Nazism and fascism. So there's two points here. One is that the push to sterilize, I would argue, was largely bureaucratic. It was driven by state and local welfare concerns. Local communities were still, despite uh, unemployment insurance, uh, and work relief of the New Deal, uh, the state and local welfare, state and local communities were still largely responsible for supporting the dependent poor, especially women, children, uh, and people with pre presumed to have disabilities. So committing a person or even an entire family to guardianship as feeble-minded would, in the hopes of the local welfare officials, get the state to pick up part of the cost of supporting them. So the 1930s also brought growing resistance to commitment in court and on the ground in terms of people running away, which they did a lot to escape commitment and to escape uh, breaking out of the institution and also running away to escape scheduled sterilization uh, operations. And at the national level, for a variety of reasons, including uh, the awareness of some of of Hitler's sterilization uh, plans and policies, uh, opposition to state-mandated eugenic sterilization was growing. And there was a series of, of reports, national reports, that really blasted and condemned Minnesota's eugenic sterilization program, which had changed very little since the 1920s. Thank you so much for your answer again. So for our last question today, I want to invite you to talk about the post-war transformation in eugenics and welfare by exploring both exchange and continuity in a state program for the mental retarded in Minnesota. 
Yes, and you see, note, note the language difference, though, by the 19, uh, late 40s and 50s, we're talking about the so-called mentally retarded, uh, and as opposed to the feeble-minded, so, you know, the, the language uh, would change. What's important here is that World War II brought new thinking uh, about both intellectual disability and welfare entitlements. Now, with the New Deal, we have a semi-welfare state. So New Deal social programs and a booming economy made it possible for people, or at least white people, who were once considered mentally deficient or feeble-minded, to be self-supporting. Now they could find jobs. Now they could support their families. Uh, and this completely surprised sterilization administrators. So sterilization administrators uh, and uh, this woman, Mildred Thompson, who'd been responsible for administering the state sterilization program, she was really surprised at what happened uh, during the war. At the same time, mental health reformers, both inside and outside the, uh, the uh, both the people who, the reformers who were, say, the medical director of the institutions and also uh, organizations like churches worked to publicize the inhumane conditions in state institutions and also to change them. So we have both on the ground people acting differently, uh, showing that they could support themselves, uh, mental health reformers working to uh, publicize and improve the conditions in the institutions, middle-class parents of children with intellectual disabilities redefined mental retardation as innocent, permanent ch childhood and made a point of distinguishing themselves, people who did, after all, have a, a child with intellectual disability, made a point of distinguishing uh, mental retardation from uh, low-class status, undeserving poor, sexually immoral. And they began to organize for educational opportunities and social programs so that people with intellectual disabilities could live outside institutions. Remarkably, the chief administrator of Minnesota's sterilization program, Mildred Thompson, played a key role in the parent movement. She supported, and literally she's still named on the, uh, the website of the ARC, she supported the founding of the organization then known as the National Association for Retarded Children in 1950. And I think this shows her social work approach and her commitment to community living as opposed to institutionalization. But she, after all those years, she supported sterilization. She saw, and it's important for us to see, that she saw herself as a friend of, the, of people who were feeble-minded protecting those in need. Now, obviously, they saw it quite differently. In the 1960s, we see Kennedy's mental health legislation and Johnson's war on poverty provide federal funding that furthered those who were trying to reform the system. But the basic structures of the American welfare system, that is local responsibility and the distinction between the so-called deserving and undeserving poor, which was increasingly racialized in this period, the, this, these basic structures remained intact. And at the same time, new ideas about the culture of poverty began to replace old eugenics descriptions of the feeble-minded menace. 
the impact was basically the same. The culture of poverty was multi-generational. Feeble-mindedness was multi-generational. Uh, and so I, you know, it was seen in, in practice, although one was maybe more environmental culture, the other was biological. It didn't really make that much difference to the people impacted. The main difference was that now, because of New Deal programs, and there, what many people have talked about, about the racism in the structures of the New Deal welfare state, most people coercively sterilized from the 1960s and onward were poor Black, Latina, and Indigenous women, many of whom were on welfare. So by the 1970s, a number of states, including Minnesota, repealed their eugenic sterilization statute. And we see some significant policy developments in terms of disability rights and deinstitutionalization. The Faribault School for the Feeble-Mindedness, the population had dropped for a number of years, but it was finally closed in 1998. Now, the institution is a medium security prison. And this points to the final irony that I'm trying to convey in fixing the poor. The important legal and symbolic gains for people with disabilities that we see from the 1970s through the 1990s, like Individuals with Disabilities Education Act, uh, the ADA, these coincided with an increasingly punishing approach to chronic poverty and welfare dependency, including the 1996 Welfare Reform Bill and, of course, mass incarceration. And I would argue that in some ways, the child abuse and criminal justice systems emerging as instruments of eugenics control, uh, that these are emerging as instruments of eugenics control in the 21st century. So I wrote this book a few years ago, and there has been an extraordinary resurgence of offensive eugenics rhetoric since I completed the book, since the Trump administration and so on. Even so, I hope that my book encourages readers to look beyond this offensive rhetoric and to also examine the mundane cruelties that sustain the system. Taxpayer stinginess, which we still have very much uh, the sense of, I may be struggling with housing affordability, but I'm deserving, uh, as opposed to these who are not. So we have the mundane cruelties like taxpayer stinginess, child removal, and a really punitive welfare system. So I hope that by exploring the welfare function of eugenics policies in the past, uh, we can see, we can reflect on some of the eugenic implications of the child protection and welfare practices that are in place today that just aren't getting as much attention. Everybody hates eugenics. But meanwhile, a lot of these uh, really disturbing and problematic policies continue. So that's it. So thank you so much for your answer. So at the end of our talk today, I want to directly talk to our audience. So listeners, as a disability student, personally, I very, I mean, I highly recommend Dr. Molly Taylor's news book, not news book, but fantastic book, Fixing the Poor which is a very good, very fantastic study about history of disability or history of eugenics in North America. So if you take any interest in 
either the topic I mentioned、uh, before, as personally highly recommended, considered by a copy of Doctor Molly Lad Taylor's book Fixing Poor. It's a wonderful book, and、uh, you, I I believe you must learn a lot after reading a book. You must、uh, renew. You, I mean, formal understanding of eugenics, either disability in North America. So, please, I want to, I want to say again the title of this fantastic book, "Fixing Poor." So, thank you so much for listening to the episode today. Have a wonderful day. Thank you. Thank you so much for having me.